I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Fees listeners. On this edition of the program, we're joined by Susan Schneider of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research to discuss her most recent book, published by Verso in September 2021, The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. This conversation was recorded a few months ago, but remains as relevant as ever as it digs into topics such as the relationship between 21st century jihad and modernity, the crisis of liberalism coming home to roost, and that famous line from Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. How does that all tie together? Well, we attempt to unpack that in the conversation to follow with Susan Schneider of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. 
Welcome to Parallax Views, Professor Susan Schneider of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and author of the book we're going to be talking about, a rather fascinating one. It's entitled The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. So there's a lot to unpack with this title. We've, we've got apocalypse, end of history, modern jihad, and crisis of liberalism. And I guess where I want to start is uh, the issue of modernity and also what we mean with the term liberalism. Because I, I think a lot of people aren't going to be using the term liberalism in the context that you've used it in the book. So maybe you could explain that and maybe also explain how this relates to modernity. And, you know, this sounds kind of dumb, but even what we mean by modernity. Yeah, certainly. Well, I, that's, that's a lot, but I'll give it a try. Um, right. The, the title is, you know, trying to be a little bit provocative, of course, and essentially taking these things which are thought about as opposites uh, and, you know, putting them into conversation and then thereby, right, suggesting that maybe there's some sort of common ground here, some sort of overlap um, that we need to examine. And so the apocalypse is, you know, reference here to really the, um, you know, the, the notion of some sort of great apocalyptic cosmic confrontation uh, between the forces of Islam and the West. This is a view that is was kind of propagated most forcefully by the Islamic State or ISIS as it's or ISIL, right? There's different acronyms people kind of use uh, to describe the group. And the end of history uh, is a reference here to Francis Fukuyama's kind of very influential essay and then later book from the late 80s and early 90s um, about, you know, the, the, the end of history and the notion that we have kind of... Uh, reached the end, the humans have reached the end of our ideological development, that kind of Western capitalism um, and liberalism has won out, that there are no more like ideological rivals after the fall of the Soviet Union. And from here, there's just going to be like little, you know, technocratic tweaks, but essentially like the, the work of political imagination is done. Um, and that both of these projects have something kind of rather nihilistic about them, I suggest throughout the book, and that we should view them not so much as oppositional forces, but as two sides of the same coin. Um, and in terms of kind of the liberalism piece of this, you know, I'm liberalism um, as a kind of philosophical or kind of term or term that kind of comes out of political theory is not just, you know, what people would think about, like, you know, like, oh, Bill Clinton's a liberal or something like this, right? This kind of very contemporary usage. Liberalism here refers to a political tradition that really goes back to the 17th century that stresses, uh, you know, uh, individual freedoms, uh, kind of uh, free markets, and, um, you know, private property, um, you know, it's associated with democracy, um, and that, you know, is articulated very forcefully originally by people like John Locke, but then, you know, expanded on throughout the centuries. It's like that, you know, essentially the political philosophy that's very influential to the creation of the United States um, that does kind of, uh, you know, favor individual rights, at least for some, um, views the state as a vehicle to preserve and protect private property. Um, and wants to create some sort of democratic institutions. And certainly by the time Fukuyama is writing at the, you know, at the, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there is this notion that, right, this, this is a, this kind of, um, you know, uh, this duo between democracy and rights on the one hand, and kind of so like the freedom of the individual and, and freedom of political institution on the one hand, went along with the freedom of the marketplace. 
uh, that these two were necessarily conjoined so that democracy and capitalism were kind of, you know, glued to, to, to one another in a very essential way. And I think that part of what's happening in our own kind of recent years is that we've seen how those projects actually pull in oppositional directions and that they're actually often in tension. And when we talk about the crisis of liberalism, that is one of the ways at least that we can think about that is the kind of seeming uh, separation of these, you know, these two that were thought about as being uh, kind of natural allies for so long. And then I, I also asked about modernity. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but what, what do we... What is modernity? Well, I mean, the... Again, we, 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 we could answer that question in so many ways. I think for me, as someone who's comes from a, you know, almost like religious studies background, uh, I, I often think about modernity as a very kind of self-conscious uh, uh, break with something that is labeled, then only kind of retroactively labeled as traditional. Right. Modernity and tradition, these are um, these are these are binary terms, but they don't, you know, but they're they're they don't exist kind of, you know, they don't exist on their own. Right. Like like 14th century peasants didn't walk around thinking about how they were traditional. These are, um, you know, terms that are kind of um, ascribed retroactively and often by way of differentiation. So certainly modernity in the West is often associated with liberalism, associated with things like individualism, with, you know, using one's own reason in order to come to your own decisions in this kind of very like uh, in this very, you know, Kantian way. Um, it's associated with right the Enlightenment, it's, and then the associated you know social and political institutions that kind of come along with that project: democracy, secularism, right, so on and so forth. So then, a core sort of point, sticking point in your book is this idea of jihad as a very modern phenomenon, and and as I was telling you. Uh, before we came on air, I've read other uh, scholars and thinkers who have said this. Um, you know, most notable among them for me is uh, John Gray, who uh, is a British philosopher for my listeners. And he wrote a book, I believe it was called uh, Al Qaeda and What It Means to Be Modern in 2006. And he argues that uh, ultimately uh, Al Qaeda, and, you know, I think he's even said more recently that phenomena like the Islamic State uh, are products of modernity. So maybe you could unpack uh, how you look at this issue of jihad and its relation to modernity. Yeah, so I think it's important to note that right, I mean, jihad is, is not just modern, but the forms that we experience of it today are kind of necessarily modern. They are byproducts of the modern world and its crises. Um, right? Jihad is a, um, a concept of practice that has a long history within, you know, within Islam that uh, we could kind of get into there's multiple um you know versions as to even what jihad is whether or not it's necessarily violent there's a you know abundant like you know kind of classical legal literature um on this as a phenomenon but my approach is to say like that you know that we have to first and foremost understand that jihad is a historically embedded phenomenon that just because we call something religious doesn't mean that it's a historical that it stands outside of you know time space social conditions etc so jihad today doesn't look like jihad did in the 8th century like and that should be kind of like a duh moment but in, in fact actually there's there sort of i was just going i didn't mean to interrupt but i, I yeah. think we there's sort of this i would say western exceptionalist view where 
uh, something like jihad, that's other than than us, yeah. you know, it's us so Westerners. It's it's removed from uh, you know time and space in the way that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. It's, it's exotic. It's completely foreign. It has nothing to do with us in the modern world. Such that if we want to understand what jihad is, like we want to understand what's going on with you know with with some like you know ISIS attack in you know a European capital, what do we need to do? We need to scour the Quran and see what is said there about jihad, and then we can look at these early commentators. And it's like. For what other social or political phenomenon would we accept this approach that, you know, the inter like, you know, veening centuries are somehow irrelevant. And so I think my, you know, approach is 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 really to understand that jihad uh, today does not even look like jihad did 100 years ago, which looks very little like it did in the medieval time. Right. That like the broader history of warfare, jihad has evolved over time and it's actually done so in ways that parallel the broader kind of transformation of warfare. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, most recently, over the course of the 20th century, the biggest shift that we see is that jihad has become unmoored from the state. That is, um, for you know, most of its history, really all of its history prior to the 20th century, it was accepted that jihad was a prerogative of rulers, a prerogative of states. People were called to jihad uh, in a similar way that you might be drafted, right? As like a conscript. Jihad is not a vigilante tool. Jihad is not something individuals can just do on their own any more so than, you know, medieval peasants could declare war on the neighboring feudal territory. This is the prerogative of states and rulers. And there, and so there's, you know, a few different ways of looking at this. One is like, oh my goodness, look at the, af- the op- absolute kind of barbarism of these attacks. These are like leftover from medieval times. And then on the other hand, you're like, well, wait a minute. Actually, what's happening here is a privatization of violence where individuals and non-state actors are essentially taking violence into their hands and asserting that they are actually the legitimate wielders of force, that these traditional structures of political authority no longer hold. And oh my goodness, that actually looks much more like something like Blackwater than it does the, you know, uh, than than it does like some sort of like, you know, medieval uh, army organized against the Crusades. Um, so I think that, you know, there is this, oh, again, always impulse to want the jihad as a phenomenon to belong to some other world, the Islamic world, the medieval world, something that's exotic, rather than situating it in the context that I think makes a lot more sense, which is the kind of, you know, broader social and political trends, the evolution of violence, privatization of everything and violence included. Yeah, and I want to note uh, here, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned in the book one of my favorite uh, sociologists, Max Weber, uh, who defines the state as the human community that claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence within a given territory. Um, and I, I think that's a pretty good uh, summation of what the state has uh, traditionally been. Uh, but with this issue of jihad, if you could go back a little bit, you said that there's a difference between uh, maybe jihad in the past and uh, modern forms of jihad. What what were the sort of older versions of jihad like? Maybe you could elaborate on that a bit. So, right, the, the first piece of this is, as I just mentioned, is that it's a question as to who has the authority to declare jihad, right? It is it is a political ruler. It is a, an, an established and recognized kind of political authority who's given the a sovereign. wide... Yes, the sovereign power essentially, right, is given a, a wide range of authority in kind of you know classical sources to to declare jihad. It is the really the kind of the job of the sovereign. Jihad is um, in uh, kind of formal formal religious terms. Uh, jihad is recognized as a collective obligation, a 
upon the Muslim community. So fard ein, or sorry, not fard, fard uh, the, uh, is something that is uh, incumbent upon the community as a whole. And one of the transformations that happens in the 20th century is this reconceptualization saying of pe uh, people who say, no, 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 actually jihad is not a collective obligation. It's actually an individual obligation. Every single person is called to do it. Uh, right, is fard ein, this thing that, uh, um, yes, you know, regardless of whether or not you are in the vicinity of the of, of the battle or not, regardless, right, yet all of these kind of traditional stipulations uh, for waging jihad, right, did you get like permission from your parents? Like all of this is rendered irrelevant because now it is this individualist observation. So again, we can narrate that as some sort of what's wrong with these people, or there's some sort of pathological explanation, but what you also see is there really a sense of individualism and the notion of the individual at the center of kind of political and social change um, reflected here, even in this you know, religious, this, this, this designation of, um, of legal categories as to how we can think about jihad. Um, there's the, you know, in these classical sources, a lot of this is, is, it's a little, it's dry. It's like not the most exciting reading, right? It's like, it's a lot of, uh, you know, debates about what kinds of weapons can one use? What should you do with people who are captured as, you know, an, you know, enemy combatants? It's almost like it's legal theory. It's absolutely legal theory. You know, uh, it is, um, you know, it is, that is 100% the case. And it's of course also a, a diverse um, collection of voices. Right? There's no singular authority within, you know, uh, within Sunni Islam that says, well, this is what jihad is, right? There are different schools of legal interpretation. There's four recognized schools of legal interpretation within Sunni Islam as well, just alone, right? They don't agree with one another. There are different kind of positions and different views on, uh, you know, on, on what jihad is, um, who is obligated uh, to take part in it, Right. The um, but yeah, a lot of this is, um, you know, yes. What should you do when you come upon places of worship? You know, including right. A lot of these sources say, right, you have to you have to guard places of worship, even if they're not Islamic places of worship. Right. You can't attack monks. You don't execute, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, you don't execute kind of hostages. A lot of the a lot of the things that the Islamic state in particular seem to take pleasure on doing was pr precisely overturning the normative view of Sunni jurists throughout the centuries. So it's interesting. Can we look at any specific examples where this more modern form of jihad begins to arise? Yeah. And, and like, can we pinpoint any exact uh, times? So it's a, right, it, it, it is definitely... It's definitely a kind of trend that's growing throughout the 20th century, and that ironically has its roots in a democratic uh, and quite liberal critique of absolutism. Um, this notion that, you know, the rulers must be obeyed regardless of whether or not they are unjust. Actually, this is an idea that comes under quite a bit of fire um, during the, you know, early 20th century in much of the kind of Muslim world, not from the, you know, really from very liberal quarters. Um, and that is uh, kind of picked up on and elaborated and I think becomes really crystallizes into something, you know, quite significant at the hands of the Egyptian thinker Said Qutb, who is kind of broadly viewed as the, the kind of father or the, you know, the ideological father of kind of contemporary jihad, who has this kind of critique of absolutism at uh, the core of his project. 
um, and who argues essentially that the Muslim masses have entered this new state of jahiliya, of kind of the age, it's a, a jahiliya is a kind of term meaning the age of ignorance that refers to the period prior to uh, the Prophet and prior to the kind of, um, you know, the age of Islam. And that the, along with that designation, meaning that the, you know, the ostensible Muslims were ruling these, you know, various kind of post-colonial states, they were kind of Muslims in name only. Uh, they actually were kind of apostates. They had no, they, they oppressed the masses, they prevented the true practice of religion, and they had no right to claim authority. So this already, this notion that, you know, the unjust ruler has no right to authority, very modern uh, kind of argument. Uh, that disrupts the kind of traditional claims to um, to obedience that you found within the kind of Sunni literature. And so this is one kind of, you know, key piece of, uh, of, of Qutub's project. And what does that mean for him? It means that these people who are in power also have forfeited their right to lead the faithful in jihad. They can't be trusted to discharge this obligation anymore because they themselves are apostates. So what happens? The state is no longer a vehicle then for um, advancing this kind of collective religious obligation. It then devolves onto individuals or to a kind of individual like vanguard. And, you know, Kutub comes, uh, you know, prior, he, he kind of flirts with Marxism prior to, um, you know, uh, embracing kind of uh, more like radical Islam. And so you kind of hear the, you know, the, the, the shared language there, but that, right, this is an obligation then that devolves onto individuals because the state cannot be trusted. The state is, um, you know, the state and the rulers themselves are, are, not, are no longer to obey. And the aim of jihad is actually the overthrow, overthrow of these states. Um, right, this is a radical, <laughs> radical departure from uh, kind of, you know, pre-modern, um, you know, either kind of anti-colonial jihads, as we kind of saw the kind of them revive in, you know, South Asia, say, in the 19th century, or defensive jihads against the crusaders and the kind of, you know, uh, in, in, in kind of medieval times, right, this idea that jihad is now a tool that you can use against Muslim rulers. This is, again, legal innovation that is parading in the, 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 the clothes of traditionalism. Um, but we have to just really only scratch the surface to see how incredibly innovative uh, a thinker like Qutub was. And also, I wanted to get into this uh, maybe just briefly, but uh, in the 20th century uh, in the Middle East, there were a lot of uh, secular uh, sort of movements, uh, secular nationalist movements. And, it, and at a certain point, they become eclipsed by uh, more Islamic-based movements. Uh, why does that sort of switch occur? I mean, yeah, we could point to a lot of different factors here. I think that, um, right, the... <sighs> Right, you have uh, this kind of sh shared history in the kind of era of decolonization, where you know socialist or kind of quasi-leftist movements will you know have some sort of you know successful revolutionary moment and then kind of quickly descend into authoritarian governance. Um, right, we see this in Egypt, we see this in Libya, we see this in Syria, we see this in Iraq. This is a kind of very um, kind of uh, common trajectory in kind of these post-colonial states, and. Part of what happens there is that um, kind of religious mobilizations are really the one thing that the state cannot shut down. Uh, is the only form of, um, you know, almost like political and social life that truly cannot be outlawed. And, you know, particularly, uh, in, you know, many of these, you know, in, in terms of like why these socialist projects fall apart, 
Um, I mean, they each have their own kind of uh, intricacies, but certainly a kind of fear of rivals and, and inability and unwillingness to kind of share power um, was 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 at the forefront of, of of the problem in places like Egypt, and that the you know what what ends up happening then is that the only alternatives to these projects end up coming from more traditional religious bases. They end up coming from the right. Um, and in Qutb's writings, you see this really clearly where he has a sense of having flirted with all of modernity's different projects, um, liberalism, nationalism, socialism, communism, all of these things, he says, these are all failures at the end of the day. Um, and that the only you know, thing that can truly um, uh, affect a revival of the kind of Muslim societies and peoples is Islam itself. Right, that the problem is that this is it. We've, we've been attempting to kind of uh, imitate, you know, different political and social systems that are inauthentic, that kind of came from the outside, so to speak, rather than going back to the sources. Um, and this is right. This is obviously a message um, that has uh, has different versions in different societies and is very attractive, you know, in our own. You have all these kind of references to, you know, like the, that that founding moment of, say, the American Republic. Right. We need to go back to that like original moments when when things were just emerging. Um, and if we can only, you know, repeat those the, the in the footsteps of these kind of, you know, pious ancestors, then we can also somehow uh, re revive their greatness as well. Um, so, you know, in terms of how Islamist politics become the only game in town, I think there's a few kind of inter, there's, there's a few interlocking threads here. Um, you know, one of them has to do with the actual experience with, uh, kind of, of kind of post-colonial, like often revolutionary socialist governments, um, and the real disenchantment with that project. Um, and one has to do with a sense of uh, this question of authenticity of um, how is it that we can have a, how is it that we can revive what is actually, you know, essential within, you know, uh, Islam rather than trying to ape some sort of, you know, foreign system. So before we move on to the, the topic of uh, neoliberalism, uh, what is the relevance of looking at modern jihad in this way uh, what is the relevance of looking at modern jihad as hypermodern yeah well um again i think that there is um there's something reassuring uh, uh about saying that you know jihad belongs to the past and not the present or right or certainly not a future because if we can say that, then it means that there's nothing fundamentally askew with whatever, you know, broader social and political conditions we inhabit right now, right? To see jihad is actually not a leftover from the kind of past, but the byproduct of our modernity in its crises means that we have to kind of look more reflexively and more critically at what it is about that modernity that is generating, you know, this project. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think that we often don't want to do that um, and that it does some important work of system preservation to say that uh, we can attribute, you know, jihad to, again, this completely exotic world or this like, you know, these, these former barbaric times, right? I'm much more of a, a Frankfurt School thinker uh, in my thinking in that I kind of, uh, and what I mean by that is that I'm always a little bit suspicious that, um, uh, and, and, and rather think that whatever crises that we're dealing with are, are going to be, you know, accounted for by the very thing that we are examining, not as their antithesis. Um, so, you know, when you think about 
jihad and neoliberalism, for instance, um, right? Like some of the features I've already pointed to already are, I think, suggestive here. So on the one hand, the primacy of the individual as the unit of political and social change, the real idealization of the individual, uh, the turn away, pivot away from the state and collective frameworks for affecting change. Right. I mentioned, you know, thinking about jihad is a, 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 the privatization of violence, thinking about that alongside, you know, the rise of other kind of non-state actors, um, quasi sovereign powers. Right. And these can be either militant groups or frankly, these can be like multinational corporations that are essentially sovereign in many of the territories that they operate. You know, um, and you know, we can think about like the history of like shell oil in Nigeria or something like this. And this is, you know, not just true of extractive uh, entities, um, that, but there's clearly, um, you know, if, if, if Weber had this view of the state as the thing that was kind of, you know, the wielder of, of, of power and the wielder of violence, we're like clearly in this new era where that is not entirely the case. Uh, where kind of private power of some form is often, uh, you know, has the upper hand, is stronger than any sort of kind of, you know, public or state power, um, and that states, you know, are, are even kind of, again, exist to do the bidding of the, of those kind of private powers and the, those private interests. Um, we can think about, um, you know, also, we haven't even talked about the, the kind of question of spectacle here, the question of violence, but what is the, you know, how, how, how does the way that, you know, jihad, is a media event as much as anything else. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say that the, I, I was reminded of, uh, when I told you I was reminded of John Gray, I remember a specific line where he says in his 2006 book, uh, Al-Qaeda understands that 21st century wars are spectacular encounters in which the dissemination of media images is a core strategy. And uh, I, I think he nails it with that one. No, absolutely. That the, right, that the, very, very savvy use, um, not just of mainstream, but of course of social media channels like, you know, Telegram and, you know, all these gamer platforms, so on and so forth. But I, I think they've even done like, uh, I mean, Islamic State has even done like rap type videos. They, they're, again, there's nothing like anti-modern about the subjectivities of, the, of, 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 of these people, of their recruits, um, you know, all the way down to the type of education they have, right? They tend to be better educated um, on the whole than, than others. They, you know, a preponderance of engineers, people who have been trained in very instrumental and technical fields, um, you know, within the, within the jihadi ranks. So like these Yes, like all of this is, the, however uncomfortable, the product of modernity, the product of, you know, it has the traces and the little like the footprints uh, of, of fingerprints rather of, of neoliberalism kind of all over it, um, right? Even in terms of the kind of communities that they are envisioning that are truly global in, in scope that kind of supersede the boundaries of the nation state that are, you know, the, think about the organization of something, you know, first like Al-Qaeda and now like the Islamic State, which is looks like a global corporation. You've got like, you know, your franchises all over the world. You've got headquarters back in, you know, in, 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 in a single territory. And I mean, this is the, you know, this isn't there as a kind of as a form of political and social organization. Yeah, they look like a multinational corporation. They don't look like a, you know, traditional empire, or traditional nation state. I was going to say, too, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this, but I think you've even said that if you look at uh, Islamic State, they even use like uh, NGO or, or non-governmental organization type language. Could you talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, this is something that I, um, you know, kind of uh, credit the Faisal Devji, uh, a scholar who wrote an excellent book uh, called Landscapes of the Jihad, um, kind of, I think back in like 2005, I want to say 2006 as well, that he kind of picked up on this, that this mobilization of like the humanitarian language um, uh, uh, that was kind of so key to the new, um, to the effective appeals of a group like Al-Qaeda who you know, is, is constantly making reference to kind of the suffering Muslim masses um, as, an, as a, and, and, and then elevating itself as kind of like the self-appointed, um, uh, you know, uh, the self-appointed group that is going to seek revenge uh, and retribution against these, against these abuses. But yes, the language is very, very much similar to, to that used by kind of, you know, other NGOs, like even like, it, and sometimes it's like, even the images are not like they're original. It's <laughs> like, there's like basically stock images of like, you know, here's a pile of bodies. Like, do you actually don't know where this pile of bodies came from? And people who have kind of tracked this down will often see that, right, these are images that are kind of reused. They're borrowed from one geography to another, but they are mobilized to create this sense of, um, of being under assault, being under siege. And as if to ask people like, well, what are you going to do about this, right? This is outrageous. This is absolutely outrageous. What are you going to do, right? Are you going to give $3 a day, right? Are you going to come to Syria and join the jihad? Um, and I am interested again in like the type of political subjectivity that this reflects, where on the one hand, right, they praise on this really very human kind of sense of, of, of outrage and 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 being upset about the just like the world as it is um, and all the suffering that is within it. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, holds out this real opportunity for people to make a difference that wants to give them some sort of agency, some sort of like mode of civic participation that is feels more meaningful, say, than like, you know, call your congressman and tell them that the U.S. should stop bombing whatever, right? Stop dropping, you know, drone bombs on, on Yemen. Um, that there is like this uh, very slow grinding nature of democratic change that I think um, is does feel really unsatisfactory when you're faced with the real kind of, you know, moral degradation of the world and the reality of human suffering. And to be able to hold out an alternative, an alternative path for civic agency and participation, I think is incredibly appealing um, in this age where people feel so demobilized, they feel so disenchanted, and they feel like they face these systemic foes that are so much bigger than individuals to actually tackle. I, I was going to mention in that regard, it, it, what you're talking about sort of reminds me of the um, the late sociologist Sigmund Bauman and uh, his idea of, of liquid modernity, which I, I think liquid modernity is a very apt description in some ways of, of the world we live in, because it always feels like uh, you could drown in, in quicksand any moment. Um, just if you make one mistake, you could, you know, fall down the, the ladder, so to speak. Yeah, and I and I think that the right that that sense of like you know of being so flooded, <laughs> being you know keeping with our like uh, our, our liquid metaphors, um, right? Being being so flooded with um, you know we, yeah, basically just with like the the outrage of human existence, um, and it's something that you know that obviously new media, that social media makes um, all the more um, all the more possible, right? Where you're just you know you can just like scroll. Twitter and spend your entire time being outraged. 
Uh, and, you know, so a group like the Islamic State, they know this and they're very good at capitalizing on this. And they'll say in their recruitment videos, like, what are you doing? Are you just, you know, you're, if you're not joining the jihad, you're just like a loser who's sitting on the sidelines, like commenting on, you know, chat forums and, you know, being basically a hypocrite because you have the outrage and you're not acting upon it. Now, you mentioned neoliberalism, and I, I thought it was important that we hone in on that term just for a, a, a brief minute or two here, because I think that term gets applied a little bit too loosely in the sense that th there are people I know who will use that term interchangeably with libertarian, and I don't think neoliberalism and libertarian are the same. Yes, I, I would I would certainly agree with you there. I mean, I think there is a... Um... There, but this is a common, I think, mis kind of uh, apprehension that neoliberalism um, essentially means like small government, right? It means the state pulling back um, and creating more space for individual liberty, which is right a kind of a libertarian project. Um, I think it's much more um, uh, accurate to think about neoliberalism as a process of state capture and redeployment, where essentially capital like captures the state apparatus and makes it do its bidding. I mean, like very, very generic terms, right? And this can mean a lot of different things. This can mean, you know, lobbyists who essentially write the bills that ostensibly regulate their industries that then get, you know, passed along to, you know, various elected representatives and enacted into law, right? Like we know that this happens all the time. Um, the, um, and, 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 and nor is neoliberalism really the shrinking of the state but it is the, I think, selective hollowing out of the state. So, you know, you have the argument that individuals need to have more responsibility um, and that if only the kind of state will kind of pull back from its, you know, particularly like public service or social welfare components, then people will have the kind of the freedom to flourish and that the marketplace will actually create um, better opportunities, more efficient opportunities for human flourishing than any kind of the state could. And, so and have, we will all be rational actors. Yeah. So you have the state pulling back from, right, like drug treatment programs or education funding, um, you know, from, from healthcare, right? There's like nothing that's, you know, recently that's been as much of a kind of anathema to people on the right than right some sort of like government sponsored healthcare. <laughs> um, that the, this is not supposed to be the realm of the state. The state is really, um, really there as an agent of violence. Um, and right, so it's like policing, prisons, military. These are the things that have grown exponentially under kind of the period of neoliberalism in the US. So you can kind of date roughly from like the Reagan years onward. So it's not that the state has shrank, it's that its priorities have clearly shifted and it's invested much more in its coercive capabilities um, as it, the kind of provision of social welfare has receded. And that makes intuitive sense. Also, if you kind of like, right, we know that the economic effects of this you know, period of neoliberalism associated with right, reduced taxation um, and, and reduced services also corresponds to like this you know, massive increase in economic inequality. A kind of stagnation of living conditions for most people, like record concentrations of wealth at the, you know, at the very top. So as our social order has become much more unequal, it's not entirely surprising that we've had to invest more in the state's coercive capabilities to essentially uphold it. Um, so that is much more the way that I look at neoliberalism, again, as state capture, redeployment, um, and, and, and kind of selective hollowing out. And this all has a very profound effect, I think, on uh, communities. And I think it also leads to a, a lot of atomization um, on, on a social level. And it, 
it brings to mind the um, end of, of Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, where he says, uh, the end of history will be a very sad time. Uh, the struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring, courage, imagination, and idealism will, we, will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns, and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. And I always thought it was interesting that Fukuyama says it will be a very sad time because I do think there is sort of a, a nihilist sort of reaction or backlash to what he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is absolutely there. Um, that right, yes, he's describing this world again, which the work of thinking is done. That you know, the work of really striving or political imagination is beyond us, and and that all that is needed are these like little kind of technocratic tweaks. Um, but actually, right, the world that is produced by neoliberalism as a material project rather than just an ideological one is not one of broad-based human flourishing, right? So Fukuyama is imagining this world in which most people's like material needs are taken care of, right? That kind of like globalization has solved poverty and, you know, technological innovation has solved problems of climate change. And, um, right, and because all of these struggles are now behind us, we have these like little like micro tweaks that just make life a tiny bit better in different ways. But this is so objectively not the world that neoliberalism has produced. Um, but at the same time, what happens when you've been told for 40 years that there's no alternatives, that like the world can't function on any other bases? Um, and that is why I think that, um, you know, this, the, the nihilism here is, is present because if you have been told for all of this time that there's no alternative to the world as we have it, um, and the world that we have it is absolute shit. Well, one alternative is going to be the apocalyptic one that, you know, to, that, and, and, and I don't think it's, you know, a, a, it's not like a strange coincidence that the apocalypse uh, and the kind of notion of the end of the world is so central to the Islamic state in the way that it hasn't been for jihadi groups prior to it, right? It was not a part of Al Qaeda's, you know, kind of ideology that there was some sort of like imminent end of the world time that was coming, but that this, you know, the appeal of apocalyptic thinking is connected to the reality of living within this world um, and, and what that actually means here, right, in 2022, rather than when Fukuyama was writing uh, and thinking about it in 1989. So what's interesting to me, and hopefully I'm wording this okay, but the, this idea of modern jihad as uh, sort of a, a hyper-modern expression in some ways, it almost seems like uh, modern jihad was ahead of what was happening in the West in some ways. And now maybe those chickens are, are coming home to roost as we see, um, you know, more of this privatization happening here. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. Again, however counterintuitive, that's that I think that's exactly right. And I talk about in the book about um, you know, the kind of the global South and the kind of you know, colonial or neo-colonial, however you wanna kind of conceive of this world. Um, but you know, this space as being a real theater for experimentation um, and really like at the, at the forefront of you know, various kind of trends. And, that, and, that, and that, that has been the case for you know, quite a long time that the colony is this theater for experimentation um, and that right, many of the, you know, kind of, you know, surveillance technologies, for instance, or, you know, repressive uh, capabilities of the state are developed in colonial context and then kind of they come home to roost, um, as you suggest. 
And yeah, so in that sense, like looking at what's happening in something like the Middle East, where right, this uh, you know, states have lost legitimacy from, you know, for, for many decades now. Uh, that notion that the state is a kind of steward of the public good uh, has been kind of laughable, um, you know, for I think a, a majority, if not like a super majority of people who live within these states for quite a long time. Um, and they're, you know, now what are they experiencing? This intense kind of state fragmentation into different kind of, you know, zones controlled by, by, by militants. Like, the, you know, obviously war displacement, none of this has gotten, um, none of this has um, has been helped by kind of America's own military uh, incursions in the region. But I think that we can, you know, again, it's not like that we have exact templates for things, um, or we can say, ah, this is what, you know, the future looks like, but that rather to understand that, um, that, you know, something like jihad, yes, it might actually be a kind of a hardware of the future, um, rather where, where you have this kind of in, intense and advanced state, uh, state of fragmentation of kind of existing political authority and the resulting, you know, um, you know, militant groups and other wielders of kind of private power, essentially, that have filled the gaps. Um, it's not going right. Not say that this is like a direct correlation. It doesn't have to look exactly like, you know, the United States is not going to look like Syria. It's not going to look like Iraq for, you know, for a number of reasons, but we definitely do have our own problem with, you know, state fragmentation, a kind of legitimation crisis, um, and the, you know, corresponding rise of militant actors here as well. Yeah. I wanted to get into that because it's easy to just make fun of this sort of rising radical right wing in America, but they are very, you know, uh, scary as we, we've seen with uh, the, the Capitol breach on January 6th of last year. And I, I think it's interesting because once you start looking at, at some of the ways these actors within that sort of radical right speak, uh, people like uh, General Mike Flynn talk about the you know need for digital soldiers to fight the deep state you know that language is also used by uh, QAnon and I, I remember when the, the pizza, yeah yeah well yeah and I, you know I was just watching a, a video of um, Candace Owens from from the Daily yeah. Caller who's one of these people on the right and she was saying you know uh, the war has come home now we used to fight wars abroad. Now the war has come home. Uh, they're trying to get rid of us patriots. And she yeah. was saying that now everyone can be a veteran as long as they are fighting, you know, basically what she's saying is fighting the so-called deep state. And I mean, this does mirror the language of jihad in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, there's this, uh, yeah, I mean, there's this great kind of uh, quote from one of these long state publications that talks about how, right, the, the, the media operative is like basically a, a suicide uh, a bomber without the belt. Uh, right. That, you know, the, the really understanding, you know, on the one hand that like media and spectacle is, is, is a key piece of, of the war. But yes, the, the war has come home um, and that the, you know, there's so, so many like points of parallel we could look at here. On the one hand, there's this vision of community, right, that there's like the true community. There's the real Americans that are distinct from, right, those who are kind of merely here, merely present. Um, this does mirror in very eerie ways the kind of notion of like the, of true Islam or the kind of true Muslims that has been kind of circulating for a long time in jihadi circles and that was particularly advanced by the Islamic State in order to 
um, kind of basically attack um, and often, you know, execute anyone who opposed them on the basis that they were not really Muslims, they were not really apostates. So kind of pushing certain people outside the legitimate, you know, political community as a means of um, uh, legitimating violence on them. Right. So this is one kind of strategy or tactic, I think, that, that, that we can look at as, you know, as a parallel. And the, you know, other thing is just the, yes, like the, um, the sense that this is every, this is the, the, the war belongs to everyone. Right. You don't have to be a professional soldier. Um, I, you know, this has been something that's been happening within kind of on the on the right fringes of American, you know, gun culture for a long time. Yeah, this I was going to say real, real quickly, I, I'm reminded of um, that that shooter that went into Comet Ping Pong because he believed in the Pizzagate conspiracy. And he kept talking about uh, how it was basically he was trying to do private intelligence work. Uh, yeah. You know, th this was an intelligence investigation. I mean, he's talking as if he works for the CIA, you know. There, these, yeah, you have, I mean, since really for, for, a, for a long time, um, you know, but and this really came very clear during the Trump days, right? You have this notion of like citizen soldier, um, uh, you know, and the NRA, like, you know, put out this, you know, I remember this, this video that I've kind of written about uh, in, in another context, um, uh, you know, basically called like, this is war. And that is the argument is that there is a war that's happening. It's against the kind of real patriots on the one hand, who have to now stand up and augment the forces of law and order. Um, uh, and it's right, our police, all of our laws, everything is under attack by these leftists and the Muslims and the kind of black Americans, like so on and so forth, right? It's that there is this whole kind of coalition of others that are not really American. Um, and that it is now kind of the job of the, you know, the, the law abiding, you know, gun owners in this instance to kind of stand up and to support the police and to be the forces of kind of law and order. Um, the oath this, keepers, in other words. Yeah, I mean, this paves the way for like vigilante violence, of, right? This is like, the, this is Kyle Rittenhouse, like in a nutshell, right? Where you kind of self-deputize yourself uh, in order to serve in the kind of protection of the homeland. And it is fascinating because yes, you don't have to go, right? You don't have to enlist. You don't need to go to Afghanistan. You don't have to like have served in Iraq um, in order to now claim that uh, that, that you are a kind of a, a soldier kind of protecting the homeland. Uh, is the siege mentality that was so fostered by the war on terror, yes, kind of very much coming home to roost. So before we close out, with regards to the crisis of legitimation uh, and the crisis of liberalism, there, there's been a lot of people over the years who have written uh, about this or adjacent topics. I, I think of uh, legal theorists like Carl Schmidt and others who've written about this over the decades. Where do you think this crisis of legitimation is going? And is there any uh, solution to the current crisis we face? So I think we are, um, I mean, I, maybe it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly where it is, it is going. I'm kind of uh, by disposition and training, uh, almost allergic to kind of predicting the future as someone who came. I, I completely understand. <laughs> but right in, in terms of, you know, at least maybe it's even helpful to think about where it came from. Um, and right, this just widespread sense um, and we can, you know, that, that the state, that government has absolutely no positive function to play in people's lives. Um, and it has led to this real demobilization and disenchantment with politics as usual. Um, and with the sense that, right, that like all, like this indifference almost, like, I mean, 
to uh, kind of politics and, 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 and politicians that stems from a sense of disenchantment. So my dear mother, who I love, uh, 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 will always just talk about, right, how all politicians are just the same. They're all just self-serving. They're all corrupt. There's really no difference between them. And this is something that I think, you know, right, you hear a lot of mothers say this, a lot of people say this, this is a very kind of widespread notion. Um, and for, you know, for a lot of people, it's also, it's not wrong. It's like, who are you? Are you really able to vote for someone who's going to like push your interests and represent you? Um, and even and and is that how even significant is it if like your entire like the democratic governance of your um, life really consists of like you know being able to vote in elections like every two to four years? Um, Can I just add something to that real quick? I, I think it's interesting because I almost feel like uh, the legitimation crisis is something we've actually been dealing with for you know, decades. I, I've often told people, you know, there's this uh, article by Irving Kristol from the, the 70s where he talks about uh, Watergate as a nightmare, you know, and I mean, even uh, Gerald Ford talked about the the nightmare of Watergate, our long national nightmare. I've often told people, I don't think our long national nightmare ever ended uh, because we no, went from things like Watergate to Iran-Contra uh, to the Iraq war, and it's led to this steady loss of faith in leadership. It's a real erosion in the idea that kind of democratic governance can do anything to, you know, to actually move the needle in people's lives in a real way. And I often say that, right, it's not like democracy is not something that people just believe in in the abstract because we tell them ad nauseum that it's the best form of government. Democracy has to actually produce certain benefits that people can see that there's a responsiveness of the state, right? That is the idea of democratic sovereignty. And barring that, it is just this kind of, you know, autocratic, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of, you know, mechanism for, upward wealth re redistribution, which is essentially what has happened over the last 40 years. You know, like I, like, uh, you know, I, I grew up in like rural South Dakota and I, when I talked to, you know, folks from back there, right, they're not particularly plugged into what's happening in national or even state politics. And there's just a sense that it does not matter. That is not going to move the needle in their lives at all. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, they are not wrong. Right. Um, and I, so I think that, you know, in terms of what do you do? Well, you have to kind of, you know, you have to create a real democracy, one that's actually responsive uh, to people's needs and, and governed by them. And there's a lot of different facets of that, that it involves massive amounts of kind of campaign reform that involves, you know, kind of tackling the real anti-majoritarian institutions, um, you know, of the U.S. So whether you look in the Electoral College, you're looking at the Senate. But, but it probably also involves things like investing a lot more in like local and state government, which I think, um, you know, people on the left and liberals in particular, I think have not, um, you know, done a particularly great job at. And trying to make it apparent to people why a certain set of politics actually like yields benefits in, in their material lives um, in, in a way that another set does not. To you know, recre recreate some sort of faith in the state as an institution that can serve the greater good after you know, you know, many, many years of being told that all of our kind of, um, you know, all of our deepest needs can be satisfied by market forces and that the state is only a, a source of inefficiency. And I think that, right, this is already starting to, this has shifted. The pandemic has thrown this whole line of kind of, you know, neoliberalism uh, in, in, into disarray because suddenly you had something, you had, a, you had a point where you needed state intervention of a massive scale. 
Um, and you needed some sort of kind of, you know, state rescue, right? I mean, this has been happening in, uh, in the kind of economic plane, you know, for a long time, certainly since 2008, right? Where the state is having to kind of, you know, essentially like prop up the economy again, again but not in a way that um, necessarily benefits everyone, uh, of course, but that certainly kind of, you know, preserves the, you know, system right, as we have it right now with its kind of current inequities. Um, but people are not going to, you know, again, like believe in democracy just because we say that it's the best. Um, we have to figure out substantive ways of, of governing, substantive ways of making people see that, um, you know, yeah, again, like policy X is actually better for your life than policy Y. Um, and that lacking that, um, I, I, I think that we're just kind of hurtling toward, you know, a, a new phase of like authoritarian capitalism. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because when you talk about the the sort of hollowing out of um, you know the the welfare state, I've always found it interesting. We'll 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 take money away from a lot of these agencies um, that that you know in the past have accomplished things. Then when yeah. we take the money away, uh, they become less effective, and then that's used as evidence to say. See, the state it's is ineffective work. at doing its job, even though it only started when we took the money away from these agencies. Yeah, I mean, and the, I would say too that right there's there we have to there has to be a general pushback on the idea that um, right that 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 the that politics is not the space for solving collective problems, right? Because the and you know people talk about that there's a real anti-democratic. Um, thrust to neoliberalism. And I think that this is really important to kind of draw out in saying that we're going to subject all of these, you know, social problems to the forces of the market. That is a way of depoliticizing them, of taking them outside of the, like a, of a sphere of kind of public deliberation where we as a society get to get, get to come together and decide what kind of conditions we want to prevail. And that, so, you know, we have to kind of also like push back against that project um, and, and, and see that by right, we're moving things like education, by removing things from like healthcare, by removing things like house from, from uh, uh, housing, right? That subjecting these kind of uh, these social goods to some sort of kind of uh, like political process also creates an opportunity to make them more democratic, to make them more responsive and to build the material conditions that people can actually flourish within. So in closing, just a, a final note here, I guess. Th this book, and, and I think the conversation we've had in a lot of ways uh, is a complex one. Uh, it can get complicated. What do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation? And also, uh, if they pick up the book, what do you hope they get out of uh, the book, The Apocalypse and the End of History? Well, what do I hope they get out of it? One thing. Um, I mean, I think the, um, you know, under, understanding how this, you know, th this notion of jihad as, you know, uh, as, as wholly exotic, wholly foreign, you know, anti-modern, um, that this plays into some real kind of demonizing uh, of, of, you know, of, of a huge swath of not only our own country, but, you know, the world as a whole has, you know, comes with a lot of extremely destructive, um, you know, political and social tendencies that uh, that are really disastrous for, for, for any sort of kind of human solidarity, solidarity or flourishing. I would want people to understand, right, um, 
yes, jihad not as something that stands outside of the world that we hold in common, but something that can teach us about that world, even in ways that we might find kind of really surprising or, or disturbing, or sometimes even kind of a little a tiny bit funny even. Um, but and and to understand then, um, you know, similarly, that any sort of project that would put forth an alternative to these kind of, you know, violent mobilizations of the far right, um, is going to have to also think in kind of solidaristic frameworks across geographies and across cultures instead of kind of um, retreating into, you know, whatever comfortable territory we might already inhabit. Also, before I forget, uh, and, and I'm sorry, I know I said last question, but uh, I, you had mentioned uh, before we got on that there may be reasons why there's not as much exploration of this question of jihad and modernity. Could you just briefly go over what you meant by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, ascribing jihad to something foreign, exotic, anti-modern um, does this really important work of system preservation in the West, where it reassures people that uh, there's nothing fundamentally askew about this political or social or economic order, but that these problems all come from elsewhere. And I think it is far more difficult to have the kind of uh, self-reflexive critique and say, well, wait a minute, actually what we're seeing here is something, a political formation that reflects atomization, that reflects a lack of, you know, feelings of helplessness and futility against, you know, systemic forces. We have people looking for agency and meaning. We have people looking for community, right? These are these are states. These are conditions that are generated by modernity and 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 its crises. These are not things that are kind of antithetical to modernity. So, you know, in, it, it, it's. I think that work of system preservation, though, um, you know. Is it, it's obviously quite important to, to the people who benefit from the system as it is, um, who will want you to believe that this is, you know, that these kind of mobilizations are really about, you know, individual pathology that, or you know, fanaticism or something else. Um, but yeah, even if you just kind of, I think, scratch the surface of these sources, not even like very deep, but just a tiny bit, you can see that the kind of the, the political subjectivities that they're describing the um, social conditions that they're speaking to, these things are the byproducts of modernity. They're not antithetical to it. Well, I wanna thank you, Suzanne Schneider, for coming on uh, Parallax Views to talk about your book, The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. Uh, of course, I, I assume listeners can get the book. You know, I'm not even gonna say Amazon. Amazon, I'm not a big fan. Your of local bookshop. <laughs> Local bookshop. Get it directly from Verso. They're, they're the publishers. So that's, that's true, too. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Susan Schneider of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research on her book, The Apocalypse and the End of History. Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. A one, five, ten, fifteen, or hundred dollar donation. Any amount will help 
you can do any of those donations monthly and it would be much appreciated as you, the listener, are the one keeping this show going. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.